turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The following program is sponsored by Reaching Hearts Ministries. Welcome back to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled The Big Brother and the Bent One. We'll bring that to you over the next couple of times that we're together, and we hope that you enjoy it. Remember, you can always go online to the broadcast schedule there on the main page of reachingyourheart.com and listen to these messages again or download a copy in MP3 format to your personal player. We appreciate you listening and spending time on the website and spending time with us. We have more information about the worship service and other things to pass along to you after our program today, so please stay with us for just a few minutes afterwards. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentenko with The Big Brother and The Bent One. Today's Reaching Your Heart. I'm just so grateful today that a windswept hill in the darkness of the night on a bad Friday, not a good Friday, a bad Friday, the great guardian and protector of this world, the guardian and protector of Israel, died to show us what God is like. Father, may we cherish every generation and realize that we are brethren, that no one is better than another, that we who are strong in one area are weak in another, and that we must edify, we must have the spirit of unity, we must love that we might receive love. And Father, most of all, help us to be good children. We love you as our Heavenly Father, and Jesus, the big brother. In Jesus' name, amen. A bent one is not broken, only bent. Perhaps he lacks the courage to be broken, or perhaps he is at war with the broken. In any case, he is the bent one. The Christian thinker and apologist C.S. Lewis struggled with the specter of evil in a good deal of his writings. He was absorbed with this idea of a cosmic controversy as he penned his various collections of works. In his book, Out of the Silent Planet, Dr. Lewis chose to describe the devil as the bent one from a race of Hanau. I don't know how to pronounce that exactly, but I think that's how you do it. He described an imaginary race of Hanau, and the devil came from them. In his book, he used the term Hanau as another name for a rational being like an angel, an unfallen rational being. He described the human race as half Hanau because we are half rational. There are times in which we're more emotional than rational. In his book, Out of the Silent Planet, Dr. Lewis describes Satan as the bent one. He writes, he, the bent one, has left you this way because a bent hanau can do more evil than a broken one. To be broken is bad enough, even perhaps a tragedy, but to become bent is evil. In Isaiah 27.1, the prophet describes the devil as a serpent that lives in the sea that God will slay one day. A serpent doesn't move in a straight line. A serpent moves in a bent line. A serpent is, by definition, a bent one. Isaiah 27.1, the Bible says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. 
Leviathan means the coiler in Hebrew, and he is the dragon, the twisted one, the bent one. Now, the English word dragon comes from the Latin word draconum or draco in the nominative case, which means a huge serpent dragon. Has anybody here ever seen a huge serpent dragon? Anyone? I have. I've been to the Smithsonian Institute, and I've seen that big T-Rex stretched out there. Has anyone ever been to the Smithsonian Institute? Instead of dolphins, we had reptilians like Ichthosaurus. Instead of whales, way back, there were reptiles like this large Megalosaurus kind of thing that floated through the sea, if I got that right. The point was there used to be huge reptile dragons who lived in the sea. We know this from paleontology. The Latin comes from the Greek word dracon, which means serpent or giant fish. A dragon is understood to be a giant reptile with wings. Has anybody here ever seen a big fish? No fishermen here. Everyone caught a big fish? Okay, good. The bent one has other names than just the dragon. In the Bible, the bent one is called Satan. Satan is a name that appears a number of places in the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, Satan incited or tempted King David to number Israel to instill pride to bring the king down. In Zechariah 3, verse 2, Satan appears at the door of the sanctuary to keep the high priest out so he will not have access to God, to keep the people out from God. In Job chapter 1, Satan appears in the divine counsel of the sons of God. Why does he come? So he can find a way to burrow into God, to make an assault on God's character, and to get at God's friend who is named Job. Oddly, Satan is present when all the sons of God assemble in the divine council. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Job 1, verse 6. The Bible says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And what does the text say next? And Satan also came among them. All the sons of God are brethren by definition. If God is the Father and these are all the sons of God, then that means that this is the assembly of the brethren intrinsically. In verse 6, the Bible says, Satan also came among them. Now, these are well-chosen words here, Satan also. What does that mean? It means he was there with the brethren, but it does not necessarily mean that he was any longer one of them. The name Satan comes from a Hebrew verb that is used in the Old Testament to describe the act of obstructing. Have you ever been around someone who just got in the way of a job promotion? Someone who got in the way of a life goal? Someone who obstructed God's will in your life? Probably you have. Now, in our family, we have an obstructor. His name is Smokey. We have a new dog, half Siberian Husky. He has a little bit of blue healer sheepdog in him and something else. But when you stick him in the car, he's an obstructor. Let me illustrate what I mean with this. I go on pastoral visits, and if I come to your house, you'll notice I have dog hair all over my coat. Some people have commented on this. Pastor Mike, can't you keep your coat clean? And the answer is no, I can't. The reason I can't keep my coat clean is because I have a dog in the car all the time. I have my buddy with me that I take, Donald's dog, Smokey, I take on pastoral visitation. And I have noticed this, that as I leave him there in the car, he'll lie down in the back seat, just doing fine. When I come back to the car to open the door, he'll be sitting in my seat with his paws on the steering wheel. He'll look at me. Of course, I'm saying to him, what are you doing in my seat? And he's saying to me in his own dog kind of way, what are you doing in mine? 
he obstructs, he gets in the way so I can't drive and I have to push him out of the way. Now, he's a loving obstructor. I care deeply for that dog. And he can sit in my seat, but he is an obstructor in that sense. Well, the devil's name, Satan, by definition means obstructor. Let me illustrate this. Numbers 22, verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he, that is Balaam in the context, went against God's will, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. You see the word adversary in your Bible? Everybody see that? Now he was riding on the ass, and his two servants were with him. Now this is the story of Balaam and the donkey. We've all heard this story before. The angel of the Lord got in the way. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord. And then the donkey started talking to a prophet who didn't have any spiritual sense, trying to tell him, you don't mess with the angel of the Lord in the wrong way. And it didn't work, and finally the angel of the Lord had to intervene. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the special designation for Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, not an angel, the angel of the Lord. He is the angel who was never created. In fact, he is the never created creator, the messenger who comes from God who is God. The Bible calls him in Isaiah 63, 9, the angel of his presence. So here he is standing. In the Hebrew, it uses the verb sataning. He is a Satan or adversary to Balaam. What does that mean? It means he's obstructing the way so Balaam cannot move through without passing through him. So that's really what the word Satan means. It means to obstruct. Now think about that. Satan is the one who gets in the way in your life. Have you noticed that? You're trying to get close to God and some obstacle comes up that messes around with your resolve to follow God. Satan is by definition the obstructor. He's the one who gets in the driver's seat and obstructs God's will. He prevents you from having a course that is straight in moving toward God. Unless someone can stand between Satan and you, you run the risk of not finding your way in life. Now, the devil, by definition, doesn't want you to be saved because he's the bent one. He is the obstructor. Friend, before Jesus died, the bent one took Adam's place in the divine assembly. We see it right here in Job 1. And here are the brethren of the unbent ones, those who aren't bent, of the unfallen angels. And the bent one shows up as one of them to mess up the heavenly family. So the salient question is this. How did Satan get there in Job chapter 1 if he was thrown out of heaven in the first place? How does he burrow his way back to God to cause so much trouble? In Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen, God says this. I cast you out as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I mean, it's very clear. God kicked him out of heaven. So how does he get back into heaven in Job chapter 1? The Greek Old Testament says, The covering cherub led you out of the midst of the stones of fire. It has been reasoned that the Hebrew could be translated, He drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire. Isaiah fourteen twelve. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. There's no missing it. Satan was the one who was kicked out of heaven. He was the one that was booted out of God's holy mountain. He was the fallen one. And yet we see in Job chapter 1, he's not gone, he's there. The bent one is a full-time job. He showed up one day in heaven. Showed up one day after the fall of Adam. And he said, I'm back. And they thought he was gone. And he was there, according to the Bible, for over 4,000 years, representing our planet as the president of planet Earth. 
as the representative who took Adam's place. Now, the devil is in the business of weakening the nations. The Bible is very clear in Isaiah 14. You who weaken the nations. I mean, he's in the business of weakening you in your personal life too. Now, he cares if you are lost. Did you know that? He's a caring being. He cares if you are lost. He, by all means, wants you to be lost. So he cares. So how did he burrow back to heaven in Job chapter 1? How did God allow him back? How did he claw his way back into the assembly of the brethren, the bent one, to mess up the lives of the unbent ones? Luke 3.38, Adam is called a son of God. Very clear. When Christ was born, we know that he was called the son of God, but in the genealogy that leads to Christ, it goes all the way back to Adam, who Luke calls a son of God. He's contrasting the son of God with a son of God who was Adam. Job 1.6, we find that this assembly in heaven, that it's the assembly of the sons of God, the brethren. Adam, by definition, should have been up there representing this world in the divine assembly, but he was not. In Genesis 3, Adam sins, and he can't even rule his family right in Genesis 4. It's very clear in Genesis that God gave Adam dominion over the earth. He was to rule the earth as one of these sons of God. But because of sin, he couldn't even rule his own attitudes. His wife is the first one to name his boys in Genesis 4. The man who used to master the earth couldn't master his own house and keep his older son from killing his younger son. So Adam is not the master of anything. So who was the master of the house of planet earth after the fall of Adam? Look at Luke 4, 5, and 6. We come to the wilderness after Jesus' baptism. He is being tempted, and it says in verse 5, And the devil took him, that is Jesus, up, He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a stigma, in a prick of time in the Greek. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. I mean, there's no missing it. Satan claimed to be Adam's replacement when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He said, I'm the second Adam. I'm the one who got this planet by conquest. It was freely given to me. I'll give it to you if you just bend your knee and bow down to me. But the bent one didn't recognize that Jesus is really the second Adam. He didn't recognize that the one who was standing there had a right to rule in spite of him. And he didn't know that that would be the man who would never bend the knee to worship the bent one. And that means Jesus is Satan's replacement as the prince of this world. The bent one deceived his way back into power, but Jesus defeated him with the truth that strips him of power. Friend, the cross is the decisive event in the universe's history when Jesus defeated the bent one. Now, some Christians say, well, you know, why do we talk so much about the cross of Christ in the church? Isn't that kind of like a gory way to focus your faith? And I've heard some of these Christians say, let's just talk about the truth about God. Let's not talk about the substitutionary reality of the cross of Christ. You know what they're really saying when they do that? They're saying they're ashamed of what happened at that cross. That somehow that transaction that transpired, where one man took the place of every man and woman, is just awful and ugly enough that they can't relate to it. Don't show me the cross. Show me gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Friend, when you look at the cross of Calvary, it is a decisive cosmic event in the universe's history when Jesus defeated the bent one. It is the very thing that we must glory in in our life, in our church. It is something that is so unreal that it is the ultimate reality. 
It's the place where there is an exchange of power and the devil never gets his power back again. It's the place where a sinner who has no power comes to God and is transformed by the power of God. It is the glory of God into eternity. John 12, 31. Christ said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. In verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The Greek says, I will draw all to myself. It could mean men, but it means more than men here. The cross of Christ is a cosmic event that draws the universe closer to God and to each other too. It's the place where the brethren become real close. And it's the place where those who are brethren become close to Jesus and to God. The assembly of the brethren lost the bent one as a brother because he rebelled against God. He attacked God's law. He put his hand in the face of God and said, I will defy you. I will not obey your moral law. And they lost one-third of their brethren who became bent ones with the bent one. Revelation 12, 4 says, The dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven to the earth. Think of it, of all these millions of angels up there, one-third of them defected. One-third of them turned their back on God. They broke the closest, most intimate family in the universe, that which was in the very presence of God in His throne. Revelation 12, 4, 7 says, The dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars to heaven to the earth. One-third of the sons of God became bent ones too. So what was God's answer to the bent one? Look at John three sixteen. Here's God's answer. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's God's answer. God gave His only Son. In the Greek, the word is monogone, a one-of-a-kind Son, a unique Son. It's used in the Greek Old Testament for Isaac, a Son that is the promised Son, a Son who is born by miracle interaction in a man's life, a one-of-a-kind Son to save the world from the bent one. Now, who was Jesus? Ask yourself this question. Who was Jesus? before God gave him to die? And what was his name? I mean, many people, when they read the Bible, they recognize Christ in the New Testament, but they don't know who he is in the Old Testament. Let's go further back and see who he is in the Old Testament. Is he absent in the Old Testament? Does he just suddenly show up in the New, or was he there all along? Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Does anyone ever listen to Christian radio around here? A few of you? You ever listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee? I differ with him on a few points, but I like Dr. McGee. You know why I like Dr. McGee? Because he loves Jesus and he loves the Bible. I think if he were alive today, he'd keep the seventh-day Sabbath because I think that he would follow the Bible's evidence to be obedient to all God's law. But there's a lot of good things in his sermons that I have gleaned over the years. And he preached a sermon called The Man Who Lived Before He Was Born. You ever hear that sermon? You ought to go online and Google that sermon. This is one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. He shows in the Old Testament that Jesus was the mighty angel of the Lord who was the Lord. He shows that he was the one that guarded Israel in the Old Testament, that he was the life giver and the one who judged Israel in the Old Testament. And he brings it all the way to the manger of Bethlehem in the most brilliant presentation I've ever heard in sermonic form. I'm not going to repeat his sermon here, but Jesus was the man who lived before he was born. And John describes Jesus this way, John 1.10, He was in the world. The world was made through Him, yet the world knew Him not. He came to His own home, and His own people received Him not. The bent one was doing His best to destroy Israel in the Old Testament, and Jesus was doing His best to save the nation from the bent one. The Bible says He came to His own people. 
Just as Satan ruled the nations, Jesus, as the spiritual overlord of the Jewish nation, was protecting his from them, and he was trying to save his nation so he could win the world back to God through the gospel. The Jewish nation was his nation, his people. He was the spiritual overlord assigned to Israel to make sure Israel did not disintegrate so that he could eventually come as the babe in Bethlehem's manger. Now, you can't tell me that someone else had a greater role than Jesus in the Old Testament. When I look in the Old Testament, the hero who was on earth fighting back evil forces is Jesus Christ. John is clear he was in the world. The world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people. So who was this prince that led and protected Israel as the divine son of God, who was the never created creator, who essentially guarded his people? Who was the angel of his presence? That is God in angel form before he became God in human form. Every Christmas we celebrate the truth that Jesus is our brother, don't we? We look into that manger by faith. We see a little baby. It's a human face we see. But we sometimes fail to grasp that he was the angel's brother before he was our brother. In Isaiah 14, 14, Lucifer claimed to be the one who was like God. Now, it's an amazing claim. It was for a sinless universe to hear. Suddenly a creature, a created being, takes his hand, puts his fist in the face of his creator within the most holy place, and says what we find in Isaiah 14, 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. You know, he had eye trouble. An eye exam won't fix this. He needed to really have a humility course, but he didn't take it in time. There's only one name in the Old Testament that stands in opposition to this claim from the bent one. There's only one name that meets the challenge of Lucifer who claimed to be like the Most High. In the book of Daniel, there was a prince who stood over all of God's heavenly princes. The many sons of God in the heavenly council had a commander who was the big brother, but more than a big brother, he was God too. A goat is the symbol for Satan and the occult. I don't want anyone studying the occult here. It's just a fact. And the spiritual being behind Greece is called in the Hebrew of Daniel 8.8, a goat of goats. In Daniel 8.25, God's hero that opposes him God's hero that defeats evil forces is called the prince of princes in contrast to the goat of goats. Of all God's princes in the heavenly assembly, there was a prince who was over them all. He was the prince of princes. Turn with me to Daniel 8.11. We have a description of him here. The Bible says, It, that little horn power, moved by Satan, magnified itself, even up to the prince of the host. So the prince of princes in verse 25 is contextually the prince of the host. The host is a word for God's heavenly army, the assembly of the brethren. And the continual burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. In Isaiah 14, 13, Lucifer tried to sit as God in the mount of the assembly. He tried to overthrow God's sanctuary. In Daniel 8, 11, he tried to rise up and be equal to the prince of the host. And the little horn here is the means by which he tried to do it. He tries to overthrow the place of the prince's sanctuary, which is God's sanctuary too. I mean, the devil has never been happy with a church that wants to follow the Bible. He's never been happy with believers who want to follow the Bible. So he wants to overthrow it to subvert the work of God in our lives. The prince of the host rules in the heavenly sanctuary. So who is this prince that is the big brother? Look at Daniel 10, 13. We have it defined here. The Bible says, but the prince of the king of Persia. Now, Gabriel is speaking contextually. But the prince of the king of Persia was withstanding me 
for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, what does it call him next? One of the chief princes came to help me, for I've been left there with the king of Persia. Now, it can be translated, Michael, number one of the chief princes, came to help me. That's just as good a translation. Now, in the chiastic poetic formula, that's where both sides match in chiastic parallelism. It starts in Daniel 10.2 and ends in Daniel 10.21. There's a poetic formula here with an exact chiastic poetic center. Michael stands in the poetic center of the structure as the most important truth of that chiastic poetic structure. He's not a prince, friend. He is the prince who can defeat the evil angel that is too strong for Gabriel. Gabriel told Zechariah that he stands in the presence of God. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. But there is a prince who is greater than Gabriel. Michael is the one who is more powerful than Gabriel. Why? Because Michael is God. In Daniel 10, 21, Gabriel speaks again in the context of Michael's supreme role. It says, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these forces except Michael, your prince. That's going to conclude The Big Brother and The Bent One. Today's Reaching Your Heart. Again, the title of today's broadcast was The Big Brother and The Bent One. Now, you can find this online at reachingyourheart.com under the broadcast schedule. They're on the main page. You can download a copy there or listen in on-demand audio format to any of the messages that you see. Our phone number here is 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. Feel free to call that telephone number at any time with any questions that you have. Remember that Reaching Your Heart is a listener-funded program. Thank you so much for your support. You can send that tax-deductible donation to Reaching Hearts International, 15300 Spencerville Court Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. That's Reaching Hearts International, 15300 Spencerville Court Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. And if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, make sure you stop by the worship service. You can find all of those details online at reachingyourheart.com. Once again, our phone number is 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. Feel free to call that telephone number at any time with any questions that you have. For Pastor Michael Loxentenko and everyone here, we want you to know that we pray that God is reaching your heart.